and you thought our movie reviews were bad. This week on The Byword, we are turning our attention to trade paperbacks of comic book series with Saga. The Byword starts now. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome to a new episode of the Nerd Byword Podcast, episode 149. I'm Dave, I'm here with my buddy Chris, and this week we are going to be talking about Saga Volume 1, the first trade paperback in the acclaimed Image Comics series. Um, but first, as always, it is time for... Nerd News. Chris, what have you got? So you know how much I abhor the fact that everybody is a quote industry insider uh, in the advent of the internet. And, you know, it feels kind of disingenuous saying that because we have our own podcast, but you and I do not claim to be industry insiders. Um, but I saw this. Speak come across for yourself, timeline. Chris. Speak for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I saw this come across my timeline and I couldn't help but be excited um, at the prospect of this. It's what I've been clamoring for, what I've been hoping for ever since, um, you know, at Star Wars Celebration over Easter weekend, they, they announced Ray's return in Charmaine Obaid Shinoi's upcoming film. I was like, well, we have to have Finn. Um, and so one of the folks from the hot mic um claims uh John Roca claims quote according to some sources that I know a couple sources different sources have reached out to me because of this show and they have said that according to them and, and what they're hearing is that John Boyega will be coming back for this movie end quote um and I know that we typically don't like to report on things this early out without any kind of confirmation but I just wanted to take another kind of opportunity to be like like this has to happen i feel like it would be incredibly um just it would just be wrong it would be so off-putting for me um if they were to go through all the hassle of bringing ray back and continuing that storyline and then to have finn not part of that with so much of his story untold um the uh, the Yahoo article that I found even made a good point is that wonderful Lego Star Wars holiday special that we watched a couple of years back for the show, Dave. Um, they had uh, Ray training Finn. Uh, and so, I mean, look no further for the source material if you need it. Uh, I, I just really, I just really deeply want that. And the only real kind of hiccup that i have and the only main criticism i have of the last jedi uh as we detailed on our episode is this treatment of the character of finn um and then i don't want to continue dumping on the rise of skywalker because it has its fans there are people that legitimately love that and i love that for you i don't want to poo poo on your parade but it was disappointing for the for the character of finn um you know boyega has made no secrets about his tumultuous relationship with you know, the property with the fandom, with everything. And I just, I just really hope that this does come to fruition. 
I'll uh, wholeheartedly echo that. I uh, love the character Finn, uh, particularly how he was introduced um, in The Force Awakens. But it seems like um, everything just kind of kind of went south right after Force Awakens, particularly for that character. I mean, he spends you know the bulk of the uh, of the Force Awakens kind of uh, trying to. To, to reconcile his urge to help Ray with, you know, his instinct to just get out of Dodge. Then he has to relearn that lesson <laughs> in, in uh, you know, in, in the second movie. And then in the third movie, just kind of is present and, and, and doesn't really have a complete, clear or full arc. And I found that very disappointing considering all the potential of the character uh, when he was first introduced in The Force Awakens. So seeing him come back um, and, and get a little bit of his due would be, uh, really, really a positive development. Um, so I, I would love to see this. And uh, now, uh, as you kind of mentioned in, in, in the whole preface of this uh, news story, uh, you know, got to take this with a grain of salt. Obviously, the one thing we know for sure, you know, is that uh, we're going to see uh, Daisy Ridley return as Ray. Uh, but beyond that, we really know very, very little about what this movie is going to be like. Um, I'm hoping that there's room for Finn in this and, and a substantial role for the character, not just a glorified cameo. Um, but it, it's kind of hard telling at this point. I also saw some conflicting reports just looking at quote-unquote industry insiders. Uh, somebody claimed that uh, the Disney has reached out to Boyega and that Boyega has been quote-unquote resistant to the idea of returning, which uh, I would not be surprised given some of his public comments uh, after the trilogy wrapped up. So um, I, I'm not, you know... I'm not taking any bets on this one yet, although, uh, you know, hope springs eternal, Chris. Uh, Dave, insecure man boys can't keep their ignorance to themselves. This is a new story. Yeah, well, regrettably it is. So uh, I have made no secret in the past of my absolute adoration of uh, the game Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, I, I think it's like top tier, top two or three games of the previous generation that I've played. Um uh, obviously, a sequel has been already released, Forbidden West. Regrettably, because of my time constraints, I've only been able to put three, four hours into that game. Um, but thanks to my Steam Deck, uh, I'm currently revisiting uh, Zero Dawn. I'm about 20 hours into the game. And I have to say, uh, it, it totally holds up and it's still you know one heck of a ride. Um, so I've kind of been very carefully eyeballing what's going on with the property as I await uh, a port, hopefully... Uh, to PC so I can play this thing on my Steam Deck. Um, and and some of the news that I've been reading has been, you know, discouraging. I mean, you know, first, there's a big DLC that just dropped called Burning Shores, uh, but it is, you know, PlayStation 5 exclusive. Uh, Forbidden West was released for both PS4 and PS5. So if you bought the game on PS4 like I did, uh, because PS5s are basically impossible to find, you're locked out of this DLC. Um so given that I'm probably going to be waiting at least a couple of years for this game to pop up on, on PC, I decided to go ahead and read up on the general content. Um, and, and I think here I'm going to have to you know put a pretty solid spoiler warning up because as of recording, I think the DLC has only been out like a week or something. So if you don't want to be spoiled about uh, the DLC and how this ties into the new story, I would go ahead and skip ahead a couple of minutes and, uh, and rejoin us at that point. So, uh, in essence, uh, Burning Shores uh, ends with um, Aloy uh, very, very strongly hinting at basically uh, being uh, falling in love with a another female character that is introduced in uh, the DLC. 
um, and uh, the player is sort of given a choice on whether to act on those feelings uh, in that moment or to, to basically say, you know, the, these feelings are real, but I don't want to act on them right now. Um, and it's kind of uh, up in the air right now uh, what Gorilla is going to do as far as uh, Horizon 3 and, and which choice they're going to pick up with. Um, however, uh, as you can imagine, uh, this has not sat well with a certain segment of gaming fandom, the same fandom that has been uh, review bombing uh, the Resident Evil 4 remake because you can't look up uh, the skirt of a character anymore in the remake like you could in the original. Um, and the, the DLC is currently being review bombed pretty hard um, as of this recording. Um, the review score on Metacritic for the Burning Shores DLC has uh, dropped all the way down to a 2.8 out of 10, despite a really strong critical reaction. Uh, several um, gaming outlets have given it scores of 7 out of 10 and 8 out of 10. So uh, mechanically, it's apparently really good. There's quite a bit of content, um, probably reminiscent of the uh, initial DLC that we got for Zero Dawn, which was really cool too. Um, but because of this... Uh, development in the main character's personal life, certain people are now going a little bananas. And I cannot, uh, I can't just, I, I'm just so tired, I guess is the best way of putting this, you know, like I'm just so tired that as a nerd, um, you, you have this giant, what feels like this very vocal and, and much larger than it should be segment of fandom that is so toxic and so has their head up their own butt that they can't, you know, deal with, uh, with a character that is not, you know, exactly to their specifications or expectations. I'm just tired of it, man. I'll say that Aloy is one of my all-time favorite video gaming characters. Uh, she's incredibly complex and interesting, um, and the way she relates to people is fascinating. And and just, you know, playing um, Zero Dawn again on my Steam Deck, it just pops out at me how even in the first game, uh, she has no time for romance. Like almost none of the men that she encounters that express interest in her, she gives none of them the time day. It's not like this doesn't come out of you know nowhere. Um, I mean, there was always the speculation after the first game was out of either you know either she's not interested in men or she's very mission focused because she's got time for none of these guys, and and that's it's all over the game. So I don't know why you know certain people are are acting so shocked about this development. It's just so disappointing that people who love a game that I love as well have completely missed the point of this character and how she relates to people, um, and, and are now review bombing a DLC which, by all accounts, while not perfect, is quite is quite a strong addition to the base game. So once again, it's a hard time to be a gaming fan because of certain segment of the fandom has to poo-poo on everything. <clears throat> yeah, I have no previous experience with this property being an being a Microsoft gamer, um, but I mean it's universal. Uh, these homophobes, these idiots, these ignorant swine. Um, do I do I have to bleep? Do I have to bleep ignorant swine, or can I leave leave that in, Chris? I think we can leave that. I don't okay, let's leave the ignorant swine. I like that. I okay, I think we can leave that. <laughs> but I mean, like, it's a tale as old as time. Like, I'm, I'm. It's come to the point where, um, either make. I see this a lot with like uh, Marvel comics and like particularly X Men comics, where um, after years and years of subtext characters finally come out of the closet and are on panel 
um, being in gay or lesbian relationships, um, you know, and the same type of idiots have all these, you know, stupid, ignorant things to say. And so my, I'm, I'm of two minds here. Either you have horrible comprehension skills, like you, you reading comprehension was something you struggled with in school. Like your test scores were not great. Um, because when the subtext is made text, you're completely bewildered by it. Um, either that or you, and it's probably this one, you just have preconceived notions. And you have a preconceived agenda about what you want from your media and you want to live in an echo chamber. So I, 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 I'm I, just bewildered by why the sexual orientation or preferences or gender identity of a fictional character has anything to do with you and your life. It just bewilders me. Um, so you just have a truly sad existence if you truly have a problem with that. What I will never, you know, quite understand, and and I think we've mentioned this several episodes ago before. Like I am always more interested in reading about characters that are not like me. I think it's much more interesting to delve into worlds and people and personalities that are not me. Um, I'll learn something new, you know. I'll encounter new things, and I find that interesting. Um, whereas I think there's a certain segment of of, of nerddom, particularly in video games and, and comic books in recent years, that only want to encounter exactly things that are like them, uh, you know, uh, feel like them, characters that feel like them, act like them, and don't want anything that is different. And as soon as something is different from them, they reject. Um, and and that is a is a horrible way, I think, to to consume media, uh, to try to exist in some kind of bubble where different equals bad. Um, I think that's a horrible way to live life as well. If you don't mind me getting philosophical for a second, but if you're going through no, life absolutely. saying, if you're going through life saying that everything that is not like me is bad, um, you you are missing out on some fantastic people, some some interesting ideas, some some fascinating activities. Like you you are living a a limited life, um, and I think that's just sad. Yeah, I've had to fight this fight, unfortunately, in in real life. So. Um, I, I totally second, um, everything you just said. And on that downer note, we're going to move on from our <laughs> nerd news segment. Uh, stick around because after this break, we're going to dive into, uh, our first ever trade paperback review as we are reviewing saga volume one. So stick around. Ladies and gentle nerds, welcome back. Uh, this is uh, something a little different this week, as we are going to be diving into uh, a trade paperback comic book, uh, the first review of such that we are doing, reviewing the first six issues of Saga in our very own patented style as we review movies. So we each pick three likes and three dislikes in this week's... Now, obviously, we need some introductions first, so let's go ahead and talk about Saga. Saga is a space opera fantasy comic book series. It's written by Brian K. Vaughn and illustrated by Fiona Staples. All right, the uh, series is published monthly by Image Comics um, and uh, is supposed to run for roughly 108 issue, according to Vaughn. Uh, the series is... Um, 
has been running since 2012. Uh, the first issue published in March of that year um, has uh, been extremely uh, acclaimed. The first trade paperback, which we are reviewing today, was released in 2012 October. Um, it's been a pretty uh, successful book for Image Comics, has won a whole bunch of acclaim, uh, including 12 Eisner and 17 Harvey Awards. Um, the first trade paperback also won the 2013 Hugo Award for Best Graphic Story. Um and the, the series did go through a multi-year hiatus at the midpoint after issue 54. It went on a break uh, from July 2018 until January 2020, and now it is back in publication. So, uh, Chris, today we're kind of picking on a giant, it feels like. Yeah, and so, like, I saw, I think when it came back, it was like a lot of hubbub, and it, it was something that I had never heard of. Um, I'm typically, like, a Marvel consumer, of course, so then... I saw all this news across my timeline of people being excited. And I was like, well, what's all this hubbub about? So full disclosure, we are going to go ahead and review the first trade paperback in our patented form, the way we usually uh, review movies, three likes, three dislikes each. Um, however, I think it is would only be fair to say that I have read significantly more than the first trade paperback. I will um, restrict my likes and dislikes to only the first six issues uh, for the uh, purpose of this review. However, I've been reading on and off in the Saga Compendium, which collects all 54 issues of the first half of the series. And I am, I think, uh, somewhere around the four or 500 page mark of that. So I'm a little further ahead in the story than Chris. I will, however, be biting my tongue and not give anything away or review any of the parts beyond issue uh, six, uh, unless I really, really feel like I need to mention something. And then I will give a spoiler warning in case Chris wants to put his fingers in his ears. So Chris, uh, let's go ahead and dive into our likes for Saga. What's your first like for the series? I like that it fully embraces the imaginative potential of the sci-fi genre. You have some really wild character designs. I think the one that strikes me the most, other than the stalk maybe, as being this like humanoid spider lady. Um, I think the the robots being like this royal family with television screens for heads. It's like some twisted dark fantasy of the Teletubbies come to life. Um, and it's just, just truly imaginative. And, and sometimes we make criticisms of Star Trek or Star Wars for not really embracing the, the genre enough. So I, I really like how imaginative the characters and the worlds are here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it probably uh, bears mentioning for uh, our listeners who are not familiar with the series, which uh, if you're listening to the show and you like comic books, that's a shocking development. But still, I think it bears mentioning. Uh, so this story is a space opera. It focuses on two characters, Alana and Marco, who are from uh, warring races in an intergalactic war, and they fall in love and they have a child together uh, called Hazel, a daughter, and they are uh, on the run from both sides who uh, want to get a hold of them for various reasons. Um, so that's sort of the underpinning of the story. And yeah, I would, I would totally agree with you that this is an extremely imaginative uh, series as far as character designs in particular um, and, and structurally as well, I think. I think the TV screen thing on the robots is particularly interesting because you get these flashes of their thoughts across the screen. So they're oftentimes literally broadcasting their innermost feelings like they lose control or something usually in like really emotional moments i think of one where uh, the character that you mentioned a stalk is reaching for something and one of the robot characters shoots 
her. Um, and, and you see like a, a, a rattle on his screen because he just found out that his wife is expecting. And you're like, you know, yeah. he doesn't want to die because he wants to take care of his kid. And it's just like such a such a great idea for such a visual medium like comic books to be able to, you know, broadcast the innermost thoughts of a character without, you know, the pesky caption box. It's like it's a purely visual way of communicating emotion. Um, so there are some very, very cool imaginative things going on in this series. And I, I'll, I'll wholeheartedly echo that. It's one of my favorite things as well. All right, Dave, we're nothing if not consistent with your first like. Yeah, we're we're family guys, aren't we? Um, and and so that's really the first thing that absolutely hooked me in the series from like the first few pages on, is that there's this really strong family dynamic. You know, you have uh, you have Alana and Marco who uh, are very very different people and still love each other a great deal, and then the way they care for. Uh, their daughter throughout these first six issues and trying to keep her safe and everything. Um, it, it's something that I find, you know, as somebody with a family myself is extremely resonant um, and it's easily one of my favorite things about the series. Um, it's it's always sad, and we've talked about this before, how oftentimes the notion of family is so whole, wholeheartedly rejected by the quote-unquote big two publishers, you know. Um, superheroes and family don't mix, apparently. And so jumping out of the big two into something that's indie and is, it wholeheartedly embraces the notion of family uh, without saying that, you know, it's unrelatable. <laughs> it's kind of nice because I totally relate to, to that kind of dynamic. And, I, and it's one of my favorite things about the series. I was talking to our dear friend Ash from X of Words yesterday, and um, he made a really prescient point that I hadn't really thought of. Um, and the, it's the fact that Jean Grey, throughout her convoluted history of X-Men comics, has never been pregnant. She has children, but they always happen in the far future. So you never have to deal with the fact of, oh, this titular character that, uh, in his words, were, has been overly sexualized and, and trying to kind of sell comic books to teenage and young men, teenage boys and young men. You've never had to like view her as pregnant or with child. Um, and that's like a, such a welcome change here. Um, and as someone who has gone through the miracle of childbirth with um, and, and seeing that firsthand and then, you know, like all the necessary stuff about breastfeeding and rearing a newborn child, it's such a welcome market change from the big two. Yeah, absolutely, Chris. All right, so what is your second like uh, for Saga? This is a really fast read. Um, we peeked behind the curtain here. We started state testing uh, this past week. And so our work lives have been chock full of responsibilities and stuff. And the week kind of got away from me. And you texted me yesterday and was like, are we still doing Saga? And I hadn't read any of it. And I read all six issues in like an hour, hour and a half. So it's a very fast read. It's very suspenseful. More on that in a moment. Um, and it's just like a really kind of easygoing read. Um, there are some pages where it's just panels and panels of art and action. And I think Vaughn has a really, it, it, I think one of the things that's the strength of this comic, and I don't know if, if I think it's, it's staples in Vaughn exclusively the entire time. Am I correct in that? Yes. Yes. Uh, staples okay. is, is on it for the long haul as far as I know. Okay, and so like I think that is such a another welcome change from mainstream comics where 
Uh, and this is no shot at at folks on you know bi-weekly or monthly releases as you have to have a fill-in artist every now and again or you have to tag team at five issues on five issues off um but i'm i'm a patient person um and so seeing like the same creative team is such a welcome change and like seeing like the cohesive relationship that they have where vaughn knows when to scale back the dialogue um it's very apparent here and just he lets um you know to use a sports reference he lets fiona cook and it and it and it's to the the additive strength of the storytelling I will wholeheartedly agree with that. I think that is one of the uh, biggest problems that you usually end up with with um, less experienced writers is that they are trying to over-explain uh, everything that's happening and are not willing to take a step back and let the artist cook, as you said. Um, and so uh, this is not a problem here. Yeah, this was a very fast read. I actually went ahead and I, I, I reread the first six issues to, just to remind myself um, what actually happened in those? Since, like I said, I was a, you know, I'm a little further ahead, um, you know, in that whole uh, series. So I kind of had to like, what what do I need to restrict myself to? So I reread it and it took me about an hour as well. So um, that that figures. Yeah, it's a, it's a quick read, but it's not um, unsubstantial because of that. I guess is the best way to put it. Like it still feels like a substantial story, even though it moves at a good pace. Well, and it, it if and and it's so fast, in fact, that it was hard to cut myself off at six. Like I've still got it open on my other tab here in Comicsology, it, it's it was hard to cut myself off, but I knew um, you're you're much better at restraint than I am, so I wouldn't have been able to restrain myself to the events of the first six issues. Discipline, my friend. Discipline. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so uh, let's 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 get on to your second big like of of this trade paperback, Dave. Isn't Staples just like awesome? I mean, like, I don't know. I don't know how else to put this. Like, even when things get incredibly weird here, Staple sells this for everything she's got. I, it's absolutely incredible how good how good her art is. Like, um, you know, I, I will say that the writing is good. And, and as we have discussed before, I'm a Brian K. Vaughan fan. I mean, uh, it's hard to talk to me and not talk about Why the Last Man at some point, right? It's 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 up there. It's one of my all-time favorite things from, um, from Vertigo, even though, uh, you know, it, it's it's aged in some respects a little poorly. Um, it's up there as one of my all time favorite things. However, um, I think the mo- the main selling point for me on Saga is really the art because my God, the staples sell everything. That that uh, the stock, the design on the stock is ridiculously good. Like it's so imaginative and inventive, and and she sells it perfectly. Like as I totally buy it, you know, and every little you know, background character and, and every little weird contraption is just so gorgeous to look at and so imaginative. So, uh, you know, come for the rioting, but stay for the art. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I think it's so imaginative. Like I'm crushing really hard on Alana right now. Um, like it's just really beautifully, beautifully drawn. Um, and it is truly like, <clears throat> more on more on an artist that I will follow in my nerd commendations today. Like their their artwork is so spectacular that I'll just read whatever they're drawing on, and the dialogue can come and go as it pleases. Um, and that's no disrespect to the writer, but the art is so strong that like it's one of the major reasons that I'm going to continue reading this. Absolutely, and I will I will echo your uh, your thing about Alana. That that's a character that is right in uh, in our mold, right? A strong female character. My God, she's something else. So, 
All right, Chris, so what is your final like for Saga? Oh man, it's really, really good at cliffhangers and suspense and building it up. Um, like those those last pages are masterfully done. And whether it's, you know, Vaughn's dialogue or if it's Staples art, sometimes both, it it leaves you hanging and you're like, like that's one of the reasons why it's such a quick read, because you're like, all right, well, I gotta know what happens now. And it's particularly that that cliffhanger at the end of of um Issue six, I'm like, that was one of the major reasons I was ready to continue reading on. Um, And this entire kind of through line about the romance novel, something that is seems so silly at first reference, because my mom has used to have all those Daniel Steele's and all those Fabio covers. Um, And so it was something I laughed about at first, but it continuing to be like this really important plot thread. Uh, is really fascinating, and I, I'm interested to see how that continues to develop, especially with this last issue reveal. And I am going to go ahead and uh, bite my tongue. Um, but yeah, I, was, <laughs> I will say that uh, that it works really well across the board. The series is very good at at keeping you reading with with you know numerous cliffhangers as it progresses. Um, not just issue to issue, but like volume to volume. Um, it, it's very very smartly written in that regard. You get to a point where you're always like, I want to know what's happening next. I want to know what's happening next. Uh, it, it works really, really well in that regard. I'll, I'll agree with that. All right, Dave, I'm really interested to dive into your final like here. Yeah, so I think um, thematically speaking, um, I think this is a really, really interesting series. Um, you know, not not just the fact that it has a lot to do with like family and uh, as you will as you will see, not really a spoiler, but as you will see, there's also a lot about the passage of time, how things never stay the same, how people grow closer and grow up, grow apart. There's all sorts of really interesting meaty things in there. But even, you know, if you just scratch barely below the surface of the base concept, there's some really interesting stuff in there. Like, you know, um, uh, nature versus technology, for example, you know, like the the, the people of, uh, of the moon, right, who uh, use... Uh, you know, magic and are more close to nature versus, you know, the, their enemy kingdom, which is run by a bunch of robots. I mean, you know, there's there's very like th- things that are sort of um, could have could have been just kind of subtextual, but they're very, very close to the surface. If you just take a moment to look at it, there's a lot of interesting themes going in there. And how interesting is it that um, the family that we are following that are, you know, the the main characters are quite literally a union of the two, you know, so um the the good guys are the ones that don't reject one side but but embrace the the fullness of existence like that that's just really interesting thematic stuff to me so um i'm i'm really liking even in these first six issues kind of how how vaughn just sets up those sorts of um intricacies and 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 conflicts um this is very very interesting to me yeah, and I'll add um, the themes of like the indigenous and native populations um, as evidence through Isabel and the horrors and like absolutely. That was a fascinating addition to kind of our our main party there as well. Um, so yeah, I, I wholeheartedly echo what you're what you're saying there. Well, that brings us to the dislikes. Now we get to spend uh, 10 to 15 minutes picking on a series that won more awards than we will probably ever see in one place. So this this will not be awkward. Chris, what is what is your first dislike of uh, Saga? I think um, I only had one or two really overarching things that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And they were kind of intertwined. So 
the rest of it was like just personal nitpicks. But the one that really made me uncomfortable was the child trafficking. I think, um, you know, seeing a six year old like that, as I don't want to be naive of like things that happen and the goings on of the world. It was just difficult to see that. And I'm thankful that they issued the restraint that they did. Um, but that was, that was a difficult read for me. You know, it's really funny that uh, you say that. Not not funny in a ha-ha, but funny is in isn't it funny how similar we think sometimes because that was easily my least favorite part of this first volume. It just made me feel incredibly uncomfortable uh, the entire time. Um, and, and maybe that's an effect that they were going for with that. Uh, I don't know. Um, I could have really sincerely done without that section, to be honest with you. Yeah, the other big one... Um you cover in your first dislike, Dave. Yeah, so uh, let's go there. Um, I am not approved by any stretch of the imagination. Before we hit record, I was telling you a little bit about growing up in Europe, and the general sense that I always grew up with um, is nudity okay. You know, I mean, there's a reason that so many Europeans do, uh, you know, go to nudist beaches and stuff like it's... um, Nudity is very common, Um, on, on television and, and, in, you know, in, in public spaces. And it's, it's not, um, how, how can I put this? I once was asked, and this is an oversimplification, but I once was asked what the b- biggest difference to me was of living in, in Europe and then living in the United States. And I had to right away go to pop culture. And I said, it's, it's movies because you can have, you know, a character kill 40, uh, 40 people in a movie and it'll be PG 13. Um, but if, uh, somebody takes off their shirt, uh, suddenly it's rated R and in Europe, it's pretty much the reverse. Like nudity is a little more common and acceptable, whereas violence is something that is more carefully, um, you know, regarded when it comes to like rating movies and stuff. And I think that's, that's a very interesting, um, dichotomy. And so I say all this as a preface to saying that I thought the nudity in saga was a little gratuitous in places, you know, um, like having, having the, the main character, uh, you know, bre- breastfeed uh, her child is obviously, pff, you know, whatever. But I, it was really awkward, for example, that the stalk was running around the whole time topless. Um, uh, I'm also really confused about the the, the robot scene uh, where they are reproducing with each other. Um, that, that was interesting. Um, I'm not quite sure what the rules of the robot uh, situation is in this series. Um, even after reading 400 pages, I'm still not quite clear on that. More on on that particular issue later. But I just thought really that some of the some of the nudity in the series was not necessarily conducive to the story and more just added for shock value, I guess, to 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 grab attention. Um, and I am again, I'm not opposed at all to nudity when it makes sense within the story and when it contributes to the larger story. It just, it just felt in some cases in this first volume of Saga like it was um, a, a little gratuitous. Yeah, and you, this is coming from someone you know who is a big fan of Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon and everything. But I have the same criticism of those properties: is sometimes they do stuff just for the shock value, as you said. Um, and it's almost like you can, almost like you can set your watch to it. Like when the, the one that, that really jumped out to me was when the will was going to that pleasure planet. And like, there was just an entire splash page of, or two, I think even of just nudity, sexual acts, nudity, sexual acts. I'm like, okay, we get it. You're in the red light district planet. <laughs> um, yeah. So 
it kind of took me out a little bit of the story, but it is what it is. I guess I guess that's the fairest thing to say. It is what it is. All right, Chris, what is your uh, next big dislike for Saga? This one was a little bit nitpicky, I guess. I think uh, some of the references to its predecessors and maybe like the inspiration for it was a little on the nose for me. Um, I'm thinking of like the Romeo and Juliet of it all, of the forbidden love from the warring factions. Um, it in, in a lot of places, it just felt like R-rated Star Wars. Um, and some of the comparisons were just a little too on the nose for me. Maybe I'm just being you know, overly critical. You know, um, the thing about uh, science fiction, I think in particular, is that it's become very much a, a self-referential uh, field where everybody's constantly referring back to previous works and, and a lot of sci-fi sometimes feels like extended remixes, right? And I think Saga is really no different in that respect. You know, it is still... Um, you know, referencing previous uh, works and, and, and you know, structures and ideas. Uh, I think that is endemic in sci-fi. Uh, you know, I, you'll get occasionally like wholly original stuff, but it's incredibly rare because, you know, a lot of sci-fi writers these days are standing really on the shoulders of, of giants when it comes to sci-fi um, and the way it has been written and established in the past. So I'm not surprised that it's extremely referential. Everything... Uh, that I have read in recent years from science fiction is extremely referential in some way or another. Um, it would be nice if if we could cut some of that back in some works, but yeah, I totally agree with you. There's definitely some strong uh, vibes here. Now, Dave, your next dislike is something I didn't think about at first, but I'm fascinated to visit. There's a lot of stuff going on in the story that we're ex- just supposed to accept at face value without a clear explanation. Um, and you know, I'm I'm a you know I'm a Doctor Who fan, so I am used to just like accepting, you know, like this is just how it is. Move on. This is the structure of the story, right? But sometimes it just raises a lot of questions for me, uh, like the, the the whole situation with the robots in particular. You know, like I I found myself asking so many questions about the robot situation to the point where it was taking me out of the story. Like, um, what, how how can they reproduce? for example, and, and and apparently sexually reproduce, right? They're not just like building more robots or something. Um, what's with the screens on their faces? Why is it considered a good idea to broadcast your innermost thoughts on a screen? What's with the numbering of the various robots? Like there was a Baron in the beginning who was like number 24 or 25, and then the Prince is like number four. So is it like the lower the number, the higher the rank? Or is it a manufacturing order? Or, well, no, they're not really manufactured, right? I mean, they're born. So, so you know, there's there's so many questions to the point where I've, I find them almost distracting, right? So I think that you know, here and there, I don't want everything spelled out for me. I think that's boring. But here and there, a little bit of a line that kind of, you know, clarifies some stuff uh, would have been uh, a little less distracting. I mean, we, like I said, we're taking a lot of stuff at face value here. Um, I'm, I'm still very curious about the wooden spaceship as well and how exactly that works. But uh, it's such a cool image that I can't really begrudge that. The robot thing is really bothering me, though. It's like really, really like, what is going on with these robots? I want to know how these robots came to be that can sexually reproduce and broadcast their feelings on their screens. And why is that not a bad thing? Like, we don't, I don't want my enemies to know everything I'm thinking, right? That seems odd. 
I don't know. I just there, there, there's a lot there that I'm just supposed to accept, and a little bit of explanation I think would go a long way here. We talked about before recording how we were going to meander our way through this and still keep our all ages rating on our podcast platforms. Um, but you know, when it comes to robot sex and reproduction, it's going to be a real struggle to do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I think it, um, and part of it, we're just like, that's the introduction of those two characters as well. And that entire race, um, maybe maybe it's that initial shock value of the scene where it's like maybe they won't ask too many questions maybe so all right chris i think you have a uh, another dislike in your uh, quiver there fire away it is indeed um <clears throat> you know and this is kind of tied up into one of my likes but in a world of truly imaginative characters the two protagonists being almost 100 percent human is a bit deflating disappointing like, yes, they look visibly different. She has wings and he has horns, but that's about it. Um, especially when you juxtapose them against characters like the stock or the robots. And for them to be like the two front uh, facing protagonists that we're supposed to root for. Um, I think there's something a little bit disheartening is like they have to look mostly like us for us to root for them. Maybe that's a little too meta. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Maybe I'm nitpicking a little too much, but I would have liked a little bit of more variance in the design of the two main characters. Not to say that the art is bad or anything like that. They look great. Um, I just think it's a little bit sad. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, you know, this is one of my main criticisms always of, uh, of Star Trek, right? It's like the bumpy forehead aliens that really are 99% human anyways. One of the reasons I adore Farscape so much, yes, I know, those darn puppets. But for me, at least, it's it's a huge variety in uh, in alien design. And so, yeah, um, even there, uh, some of the main characters were predominantly, you know, human and humanoid. So, uh, it does seem like, uh, I don't know, like maybe we're leaning into like trying to really strongly identify in an alien world with a character. It helps to have some humans in there or or at least human adjacent. I do not know. Um, I do think that there's enough, um, not enough, but I think there's a lot of variety in this first volume of other alien races. Um, it just would help if most of them are not painted as bad guys. You know, like the the stalk, for example, like would have been refreshing to have a character that looks like that and is one of the good guys, right? Um, because there's this like, oh, it's it's a uh, an insect or it's an arachnid and it's ugly and you know, kind of making us go against uh, that part of our natures as human beings, saying, no, this is a main character, this is one of the good guys. That would be really interesting. I I, I think that would have been cool. It kind of feels like, not to criticize too much, it kind of feels like they just had exhausted all of their creative abilities when it came to the will because he's just like a regular buzz cut guy <laughs> yeah <laughs> he does have a large cat but like there's nothing really unique about him <laughs> at all <laughs> i i i'm just gonna say it i freaking love lion cat that is one of my favorite stinking characters in this in this book i just i, I always love this like grumpy looking cat sitting on the side being like lying like it's just like just just a perfect encapsulation of how how big a jerks cats can be like just in you know, a lying love that cat cat just love that cat uh dave i'm really interested about your final dislike because the way that it was it shows up on the page is really unique and beautiful to me but i get what you're saying 
Yeah, so that's the thing too. Like I struggled with this one um, because presentation wise, it's really, really cool. Like I love uh, the lettering, right? And how they're not doing. So they're doing this thing uh, that a lot of stories like to do where somebody's narrating from the future. In this case, a grown up Hazel, the, the baby in the story is narrating this basically is telling the story that we're reading. Um, and and that I really don't necessarily like. I think that it's uh, almost become like an overused trope uh, in stories to have somebody later narrating um, um, the story that we are seeing. It's like that that thing where you where you start you're watching a movie and somebody's like in a courtroom or something, and then there's like a record scratch. Like, yeah, that's me. Uh, Want to know how I got here? It's a long story, yeah. you know. Like, like it's it's that sort of thing. And so I find I find the trope a little tired, right? Um, on the flip side, though, as you mentioned, it's 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 executed here really well, particularly with the way it's lettered. You know, it's not in, in caption boxes or anything. It's kind of kind of organically sort of integrated and wrapped around the art, you know, and I think that's really, really cool. Um, so it's maybe a nitpick uh, because it is executed well, but I really uh, generally dislike the whole narrating from the future trope. Uh, and that is in full effect here and, and is going to stick around throughout, at least as far as I've read so far. Um, Hazel continues to narrate on and off throughout the series. I think at least um, it's done well here. If we're going to have to deal with the trope, at least it's done well. Um, and, like one of the main fruits of that is the opening line is really beautiful. And I meant to mention this with, when we were talking about the family aspects of it, of like the idea of, of an idea being made real was a really beautiful opening line and something that really kind of stuck with me throughout these first six issues. Yeah. I think I can agree with that. All righty folks. Uh, there you have it. Uh, Chris, let's go ahead and uh, give this sucker a final grade. First volume of saga. What would you, uh, what would you rate this one? I'm going to go a minus like I, I'm really struggled to find any dislikes um, aside from the gratuitous kind of nudity and um, the child trafficking one was was really difficult to get through. Um, but it, it did not in any way diminish my enjoyment of reading this. Like I said, I read it an hour, an hour and a half. And so I'm ready to continue on this adventure. Yeah, I, I think I'm there too. I think there are things that I, that that work better for me than others, obviously. But overall, this is uh, this is wild. Uh, it's very unique in in places. I'm not exactly sure where this is going. Even having read significantly more, I'm still not sure where this is going. Um, and so uh, I'm definitely in for the ride. And uh, I'm I'm gonna f- you know finish reading that first compendium and get myself caught up that way. Uh, obviously, this is gonna still run for a couple of years. Um, but I'm I'm really interested to see where this ends up. Alrighty, folks, so let's go ahead and go to a break. And when we come back, it's time for our patented nerd commendation. So please stick around. And we're back and it's time for... All right, Chris, what's good? Oh, man, there's so much good. But Boom Studios continues to knock it out of the park. Um, So this is a follow-up to one of my earliest nerd commendations. It is Mighty Morphin Power Rangers Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2. Um, This started way back in December. As of the time of this recording, four issues have been released. I've read three of them. And it's just as wild a ride um, as the first crossover. This is just... Yes, it's nostalgia bait, 
and yes, it's all of those things. Um, I I watched the first half of the 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 once and always or whatever the Netflix Power Rangers thing was, and that was fun. But like this really does like uh, to coin Ash's term again, like additive storytelling. Um, it, it just like it, it's truly great. Um, you've got Ryan Perrot coming back to write. Um, you've got Dan Mora, who, like, as I said earlier in the episode, I'll follow to the ends of the earth. Like, he's officially my favorite artist now. Um, his character design on the Turtles is the quintessential Turtles design for me. Like, he's, he's, I, I just want Turtles art from Dan Mora, just plastered everywhere on my walls, on my, like, my lock screen, on my phone. It just makes me so happy. And to see kind of just playing with these two uh, intellectual properties and like kind of melding the best elements of them together, they just lend themselves to each other so well. Um, And this creative team just absolutely nails it. Um, So in the sequel comic book series, I'm reading from the solicit here. Several months have passed since the teenagers with attitude and the heroes in a half shell teamed up to defeat the unholy alliance of Rita Repulsa and Shredder, but a new threat will force them to reunite in the crossover you demanded between an invasion from beyond old enemies teaming up with unlikely accomplices and a threat to the Rangers' powers themselves. Will the two teams survive the onslaught from a terrifying new foe? Um, And there's just, I'm, I'm really trying not to spoil it, but there's some really cool, imaginative, fun stuff that happens here that like, it truly feels like you're seven or eight years old again, playing with your action figures and just your imagination running wild. And I cannot recommend the first crossover and this crossover enough. Don't laugh, but I still have not read the first crossover. I really, really need to, man. Um, I'm going to put it on my list uh, right away because um, I'm, you know, I'm loving what IDW has done with the turtles. I've loved what, you know, boom has done with power Rangers um, obviously this is a natural place for me to be and I need to, I need to read this. Um, it's just absolutely awesome. All right. I have a very complicated relationship with Cy Spurrier, but what are you recommending to me now? I know you're going to make a, a crack about clones, but let's go ahead and take a moment here. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Connor Kent, Connell, Superboy, and uh, specifically the version as represented in the comic books over the years. Maybe a little less so the one from the Young Justice cartoon. Um, odd character there, odd adaptation. Um, so obviously, um, you know, the, the death and return of Superman is sort of a, a seminal... Um, it's sort of a seminal uh, comic book series, uh, big, big storyline, big crossover, and it also did some really cool stuff. You know, in the, in the wake of the... Uh, the burn reboot of Superman in the eighties, it was decreed that there were no other surviving Kryptonians and that uh, Superman did not get his powers until his adulthood. And that, you know, wiped out the possibility for several characters, Supergirl, uh, Cars or L for one. And of course, any adventures of a young Superman, a Superboy. And it's interesting to me to read comics throughout the uh, 80s and 90s from Superman sort of post-reboot. Because A, that's in a lot of ways my Superman. That's the character I followed most of my life. And B, they got incredibly inventive in places to still be able to do those kinds of characters and stories. Um, And the way they did this with Superboy is by, after Superman dying, them sort of creating a clone of Superman um, that kind of breaks free and, and, you know, goes out on his own and 
become Superboy. So now you have Superman and Superboy sort of, you know, coexisting. And uh, Connell, uh, who takes the name Connor Ken, Superboy, is a really interesting character that's been around the block a few times. Um, most notably, there was a retcon about Superman's clone that it was revealed that he was uh, actually uh, a genetic mix of Superman and Lex Luthor. So basically, Superman and Lex have a love child, <laughs> which, you know, is also interesting. Uh, <laughs> but um, but I've, I've really always enjoyed the character, even through, you know, changes and retcons. And right now, the Superman line is in a really interesting place. Uh, where you know they're bringing sort of the, the family aspect really strong to the forefront. Everything is sort of resetting in an interesting way, sort of bringing classic iterations back. Um, but then you have Superboy, right? And Superboy is there, but what in the world is up with this character now? You know, I mean, now you have um, now you have John Kent, right? You have Superman has a son, uh, and he also adopted two kids, and then you have Supergirl there, and and there's this you know very expansive now Superman family, uh, and the one that's kind of felt a little bit on the outs is, is Superboy. Like, what what, what are you going to do with with Connor Kent these days? Uh, and so DC had a couple of years back one of those round robin things, right, where they do like this competition and people get to vote what uh, miniseries they would like to see, and the winner was. Uh, Superboy, uh, Man of Tomorrow, which uh, now is actually just now coming out. And uh, I think it's probably gone through some rewrites to integrate it with the new status quo. But it's working shockingly well. I've read the first issue, just came out as of recording, and uh, I really liked it. I didn't even look at like the cover, who did the art or who did the writing. I was like, this is this is Connor Kent Superboy. I love this character all the way since he was introduced in the, in the early 90s. Um, I, wa- I want to check this out. And so the the book, in a lot of ways, goes through the same you know questions that I'm going through, which is what in the world is DC going to do with this character now that I have they have all these super characters? Uh, well, Superboy is asking himself that question too, you know, right? What's his purpose? Like this really expansive, where is he needed? And he decides that he needs to go off off and kind of establish himself. And so there is an invasion of an alien planet. He hears about it through the Fortress of Solitude and decides that he's going to go there and he's going to try to defend this planet. Um, And it's not your average uh, invasion of the Dominators, an alien race in uh, DC comic lore, because it's a rogue Dominator who has created um, genetically enhanced versions of various alien races from uh dc comics lore and uh superboy has to fight these and and that's sort of the establishment of the first issue is that you know the the genetically engineered uh superman clone now has to fight other genetically engineered uh individuals and it's a very interesting sort of baseline for uh, holding up a mirror to Superboy and who he is and what he is and for him to kind of go off on his own and try to figure out what his purpose is and what his role is in the larger Superman family. So I really, really enjoyed his first issue. The art was was cool. Uh, the, the the writing was good. Uh, the character was on brand. It was even nice to see um, them bringing back, uh, you know, mention of his some of his powers from the 90s, which went ignored through most of the 2000s, the tactile telekinesis where he can touch something and disassemble it or you know, make it move and stuff. Um, so it was that was very well used. It seems like a really nice representation so far of the Superboy character, and I really enjoyed it. So it comes highly recommended. Yeah, I'm really intrigued in this because the comics counterpart I know nothing about. Um, but this, would you say this is a fair enough jumping on point? I think it does a decent job, sort of like um, 
you know, kind of establishing who he is through that, that, that questioning that he has, like, you know, I'm Superman's clone and I also have genetic material from Lex Luthor and here I am and I'm different from these others because I have these powers and what am I going to do with myself now? Uh, all of that stuff um, is, is, is really, really good. So, um, yeah, I like this a lot. And I think you can jump into it fairly easily without knowing the entire history of Connell. Well, I'm really intrigued at doing that because when you mentioned it, his uh, Young Justice counterpart that also stormed the Capitol on January 6th, I really did not care for. But aesthetically speaking, like I- I'm very intrigued by this character. See, the thing is, um, there is a lot of really good stuff to read there, although you'll have to get a hold of Jeff Johns at one point um, if you're going to follow him. <laughs> so um, the real good stuff, obviously, Death and Return of Superman introduces the character, um, particularly the return part, right? He was one of the four um, replacement Superman that was introduced in the series. And then, you know, the question was, which one is the real one? Turned out none of them. But um, then he stuck around, I think, Carl Kessel, uh, wrote a Superboy series that spun out of that where he goes off to Hawaii and is kind of trying to establish himself as his own superhero. Um, from there, you would want to jump into Peter David's Young Justice. Uh, he had a, a very, very strong relationship with Impulse Bart Allen and uh, Tim Drake Robin during that series. And then at the end of Young Justice, the character jumps over to Teen Titans under the the penmanship of, of Jeff Johns for a while. Um and then just, you know, the, the character fell into pretty consistent disuse. Uh, during the New 52, they rebooted him completely and he had nothing in common with his previous version. And now with sort of since DC Rebirth, you started seeing like the original uh, kind of, you know, coming back the way he was originally portrayed. So um, that, those would be the series I would go with. I would, you know, Death and Return of Superman, the Carl Kessel Superboy run, um, Teen Tide, uh, Young Justice under Peter David and Teen Titans under Jeff Johns. Those would be the ones you'd want to read to really get to know this version of, of Superboy. Alrighty, folks. So uh, there you have it. That's it for another episode of the Nerd Byword podcast. If you like what you just heard, please give us a rating and review on your favorite podcasting platform. And, uh, you know, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Uh, we are available wherever podcasts can be found, uh, including our very own spiffy website, nerdbyword.com, now also featuring transcripts of our episodes. Uh, Not flawless, but definitely useful if you're looking for a particular thing that we talked about and what we had to say about it. And as always, hit us up on social media as well, at nerdbyword on Twitter and Instagram, or that nerd Dave, that nerd Chris individually, and always uh, stay well and stay nerdy. The Nerd Byword is written and produced by Chris and Dave, two nerds with a love of all things pop culture. The podcast features music by Al Jimenez with additional drops composed by Joe Biondi. Our show art is by Ashery Design. Find us at nerdbyword.com and wherever podcasts are available. Mm-hmm.